Now, what should scare the fuck out of everybody involved with Bitcoin here is if that's accurate, that means that any prosecutor in the United States can sit down at a laptop, go to your website, type out a message you don't know about it, and then they can arrest you and try you in Wisconsin, in D.C., in Boston, in Texas, in Podunk, Louisiana. Hello there. How are you all doing? We're still out here in Miami. Me, Connor and Danny. We've got a few more days to go. Then I've got to head to New York and then I'm going to be heading back to the U.K., preparing for the new football season. It's been a hell of a run. The conference was amazing. All the shows have been an amazing. Big thanks to everyone we have seen out here. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by RS Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got a fascinating show. So this show is about someone called Roman Sterlingov, who in 2021 was arrested by the IRS when he landed in LA and was accused of creating and operating Bitcoin Fog, a mixing service. Now, Roman has been in jail ever since, but his defense attorneys, Tor Eklund and Michael Hazard, believe that they are representing an innocent man. So we asked him to come on the show and deal with this while we're out in Miami. I had a lot of questions about it. And I hope you, I hope you, I don't want to say I hope you enjoy this one, but I hope you follow this one closely and you know see what we see, that this appears to be a prosecution without evidence. Now, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, you want to get in touch, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Please also do check out the show notes. They are looking for people to support the legal cost. Please check that out. All right, on to the show. Tor, Michael, how are you both? Good. I'm liking Miami. Yeah. Doing well. What do you like about Miami? The beach. Yeah. <laughs> the beach. Or the beach. Well, you don't have one really in, properly in New York. Not like this. No. You got a you got a river you can jump in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, listen, let's set this up because uh a lot of the people who come on the show, the listeners know who they are. Uh I think some people will know who you are. Some people won't. Uh, I just interestingly, when uh, when I was getting ready, I was on Twitter, and I saw Giacomo Zucco tweeted about Roman, and uh, and so I just replied. I'm just about to interview the lawyers, and uh, I think it was Knut Svenholm said oh, I met them recently somewhere or other. In fact, when we met Knut, he had the same shirt on. He had that jacket on. Yeah, the Abu from BitArt made it for me, and uh, there's only 21 of them. So Knut had one at Bitcoin in Landl in uh, Stuttgart. Oh, really? That's to turn me on to the bit art stuff. It's a wild jacket. That's it's, cool. Yeah, it's it just came of, in the mail right before we headed down to Miami. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a hip hop. I can see it like a hip hop rapper like, like Bitcoin it. jacket. Yeah. You gonna drop some, drop some bars for us? <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen. Tell people why you're here because like, not everyone knows about this story yet, and they should. I didn't know about it until Danny told me. Mm-hmm. Like, let everyone know. I don't know. Like, introduce yourselves in your different role. We'll start with you, talk just because I'm opposite you, and then tell us what the story is and why we should care about it. Yeah, uh, my name is Tor Eklund. I am a uh, federal criminal defense lawyer who's been defending people accused of computer crime for the last decade in the United States and internationally. And um, along with Mike, we're representing... Roman Sterling off, somebody who, in our opinion, has been unjustly accused by the United States government of running a custodial Bitcoin mixer called Bitcoin Fog for uh, roughly 10 years. Uh, they've accused him of running it. And they say that he's laundered about $334 million worth of illicit Bitcoin. But the main problem that they have is that there's not a single piece of evidence anywhere that he ever 
operated Bitcoin fog and what quote unquote evidence that they have is all based on this really shoddy um, blockchain forensics conducted mainly by a company that I've since found that the Bitcoin community really, really loves called Chainalysis. Yeah. We had him on, didn't we? We did. What's his name? Uh, Jonathan Levin. Yeah. Um, okay. And what are your different roles? So my name is Mike Hazard and I'm an attorney with Tor Eklund Law. Tor is the, the senior attorney on, on the case and I'm the junior attorney coming on board. So I've been working with Tor for about three, going on three years now. Yeah, it's going on three, yeah. yeah. And um, I actually brought this case on. Roman is a, a cousin of a friend of mine from Cape Cod. And I'm out for dinner in Bushwick with some friends and I get a call one day. And it's about, it's my friend from Cape Cod and it's this crazy case. He's like, my cousin, he went, uh, he got arrested and we don't know what to do. They sent us a complaint and I took a look at it. And at first I'm like, well, this is a, this is a doozy, you know? And uh, we originally thought that, you know, the complaint looked so rock solid, of course, at first glance, as they always do. We thought we were going to go down to visit Roman and maybe talk about making a deal. So we agreed to some representation. And when we went down to Northern Neck Regional Jail in Warsaw, Virginia, where he's currently being detained pre-trial, it didn't take long for us to realize that, holy shit, you're completely fucking innocent. And, you know, that's when it totally turned and became this huge case because we decided that we're going to go all in and fight this tooth and nail because you have an innocent person locked up facing life in prison. Okay, and when you say you're a federal defense lawyer... Then yeah. you're, you defend people, uh, cases brought on by the federal government. And that might yeah. sound like a simple question. Yeah. Um, but you're private lawyers. Uh, yeah. You're not uh, assigned. Do, do they have this in the US where you'll be assigned a lawyer even if you can't afford one? Yeah, they do. They've got federal defenders. Um, the issue with the federal defenders is that uh, they're, shit. they're just overwhelmed with their caseload. Yeah. And so, Roman, we're, I think, what the third set of lawyers that third he set. had. And um, he had a federal defender um, who, like all federal defenders, was overwhelmed. And the other thing is, is that I found, I, mean, I just fell under computer law. Like about 10 years ago, I repped somebody who was accused of hacking. We got the conviction vacated. And since then, people have been calling me. Is that it requires a, a sort of um, a special set of skills. Not like you have to be any super genius, but... Uh, the example I always give on this case is when we asked the United States government for the blockchain forensics, the response was, wow, you're the first person to ask us for that. Right. Now, you'd think that would be like common sense, but like like knowing to ask those kinds of questions and stuff like that is is, is actually not easy to remember in the context of when, you, you know, the heat of battle, uh, so to speak. So uh, whereas I wouldn't front myself as any computer scientist I've learned enough over the last 10 years to know what I don't know. And fortunately now I've got a Rolodex of some really great people that when I realize, oh, I don't know anything about encryption or whatever, let me go call person X over at John Hopkins and they'll, they'll help me out. He needs a pro on this case. What did you say? He needs a pro, someone experienced on yeah, this case. Yeah, There's, this case is unique I, 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 in the sense that it's the first time that anybody's testing or challenging these kinds of blockchain forensics that have just newly emerged over the last few years uh, at, at trial. Most of these cases, unfortunately, in our federal criminal system, they go to a plea. Like 90% of cases where there's a, a criminal indictment, they plea out. The other 8% uh, get dismissed on a motion to dismiss. Only 2% go to trial. And of those 2%, less than 1% get an acquittal. Um, yeah, yeah, the odds. That, mm. To my opinion, that's a rigged system. 
And I think yeah. it's, it's highly problematic. Um, and so none of this crap that has turned Chainalysis into an $8.6 billion company has ever been really tested. And one of the interesting things to me about this case is that Chainalysis is on this case right when they start. Uh, Chainalysis comes into being around October 2014. They're working on the Mt. Gox hack. And they start on this case early, I think 2015. And at the beginning of this case, they've got a market valuation of zero. And this is one of the cases that they used to turn themselves into an $8.6 billion company. Uh, but when I look at their work, uh, I'm kind of of the opinion that they're the Theranos of blockchain forensics. <laughs> All right, bold statement. Um, and just so people understand, because half the audience is not in um, the US, you can have state prosecutions and federal prosecutions, and this has fallen under federal law? Right. Yeah, the United States system's divided between federal and the states, and originally, when America was founded, uh, most criminal jurisdiction was supposed to be with the states, but in the 20th century, there's a big switch, and now uh, federal prosecutions sort of dominate the space, particularly when it comes to computer crime. Right, okay. And... This is a particularly interesting case for two reasons for me. Firstly, is that you believe he's completely and utterly innocent, so I want to 100%. know about that. But also, even if he had operated Bitcoin Fog, had he actually committed a crime in doing that himself anyway, which I think is a whole separate area of discussion, but the right to privacy, is, I think, is an important issue and a whole area of... And ironically, with your name being Tor. Yeah, it's my real name. <laughs> yeah. Both my parents are from Norway. Yeah, We have I'm to a, go through this every time. I'm sure you do. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's like, come on, privacy tour, come on. Okay. <laughs> right. So let's. Do, do you want to walk me through the background of the story, how uh, Stefan found himself arrested? A Roman. Roman, sorry. Roman Stefanov. Yeah. Roman. Yeah. So yeah. it's 2003, and Roman moves from Russia to Sweden with his mom, leaving his father behind. Uh, he goes to school. He's really good at technology and math. He's very interested in this stuff. Around 2010, he first hears about Bitcoin and he decides to get into it. He starts creating wallets, figuring out how to make his own wallets. You know, there was no uh, common exchange like uh, Kraken or Coinbase that you could use to build a wallet. And he's messing around on the computer and figures out how to do it. He then goes around to these Bitcoin meetups that are proliferating across Europe. He's going to the Baltics, to Germany. He went uh, around Sweden. And he has people over at his house uh, who are in this environment and in this uh, developing Bitcoin area. One person at one of these meetups who he's teaching, the, he's teaching these people how to build their own wallets. And what he was doing was buying Bitcoin in bulk with his paycheck. And then when he helped somebody set up a wallet, you know, he'd give them a little bit of Bitcoin to get started. And mind you, back at this time, Bitcoin was only worth 30 cents. So... <laughs> You can he's imagine if, around. If, if, he, yeah. if he's if he's putting a wallet together and, and giving somebody a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, you can just imagine how much Bitcoin is going into that wallet. Huh. Uh, he wasn't very sophisticated with it either at the time. You know, he figured out how to build these wallets, but he didn't know much about the privacy aspect of everything. When he's at one of these Bitcoin meetups in Europe, somebody advises him to use a mixer. He says that you know when you transfer when you transfer. Um, Bitcoin from your wallet to the other person's wallet, who you may not trust, you just met them at this meetup, they can take a look at your wallet address and see how much you have in there. 
So for if you want to have any kind of privacy, you need to use a mixer when you're sending this new person who you just met and don't totally trust their initial Bitcoin for their wallet. So Roman takes this quite seriously. And he starts to use Bitcoin Fog when it becomes available as his mixer of choice. In 2014, he sets up a Kraken account. And the, the Kraken account is a key piece of evidence here. The Kraken account was set up in 2014, right about when Kraken is uh, coming out with public exchanges and public wallets. And uh, he takes all of his money from his smaller wallets that he had offline and in different places, and he consolidates them all in his Kraken account. And when he puts the money into the Kraken account, he sends it through Bitcoin Fog. And this is in 2014. Now, the government is alleging that the money that is in the Kraken account are the service fees from operating Bitcoin Fog for this entire time period. And we'll get into in a little bit why the government thinks this. Hmm. But if you take a look at the Kraken account, it becomes very obvious very fast that this is not the, the product, the, the, the Bitcoin that's in there is not the product of the Bitcoin service fee collection. Because you first see deposit, 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 deposit. This is Roman consolidating his Bitcoin in the Kraken account. Then you see him living off of the appreciation of his fortuitous investment. And he is withdrawing. It's withdrawal, 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 withdrawal. When the account starts to get substantially lower than it originally was, because he'd been living off it for a couple of years, because he's he, quit his job at this point. He quits his job, and you know he's living off the appreciation of his of his investment, and uh, he starts trading it. Now he's not very sophisticated at trading it, and he's not making a lot of money trading it. He does not have any new Bitcoin coming in. You know, Bitcoin's taking off in value, and that's what he's living on. But he's not making any more Bitcoin. And so he decides to try his hand at a couple of different ventures. He try, he sets up a VPN business. He tries to set up a music studio in his hometown of Gothenburg, Sweden. Uh, he even tries to do... Uh, he's an entrepreneur. He's an yeah, entrepreneur. entrepreneur yeah. and, but none of these ventures succeed. And so uh, he gets to a point where he's like, look, I need to get a career. You know, I need to grow up a little bit. And so he decides that he's going to become a commercial airline pilot. In fact, what I have on my wrist here is a prison bracelet that he made for me in prison, and it has acronyms affiliated with aviation on here. You have a Overshoot South, Undershoot North, you have ANOS, you have ANC, you know, and uh, he was learning how to fly. I've also been learning how to fly with my dad up in Canada. And so we bonded over that a little bit, and he gave me this bracelet. But when he comes to the United States to begin his uh, pilot instruction license, he flies from Moscow. Now, he was based in Barcelona at the time. He was a bit of a digital nomad. He was traveling all around Europe. And at the time, in 2021, the U.S. had a restriction on arrivals from the Schengen zone. So he couldn't fly from Spain to attend his uh, airline tra or aviation training in California. And so he goes to Moscow, where Russia was not covered by this ban during COVID. He does his two-week quarantine, and then he hops on a flight to LAX. He lands at LAX, and to much to his surprise, the FBI comes on the board on board and arrests him. This is it 2021? April 2021. They take him to the airport, and uh, you know, from there on, he's in federal custody. So it's really interesting that seven years ago they were looking at these mixers, and they still got open live cases looking to arrest who they think operates them, and that they were also had him as a target ready for the moment he came into the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, a fascinating thing about this case. Yeah. I think what they did is they rolled the dice. They had this like seven-year-long, multi-million-dollar investigation. Um, at one point, I think in 2017, he was down here in Miami 
with his girlfriend and they put him under uh, physical surveillance. They put him under wiretap and they did what's called a pen trap where they basically capture all your internet signal traffic. There's not a single piece of evidence there of him ever operating Bitcoin fog. And then when they arrested him at the airport, they, they arrested him. He had, I think, three laptops, multiple Raspberry Pis. He had a, a bag full of all his thumb drives he'd ever had in his life, uh, handwritten notes with all his backup codes to all his accounts. Um, what else did they have? He had that Wi-Fi repeater. He had a Wi-Fi repeater, all this stuff. He had a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff because he was going to this two-week intensive and he was a digital nomad. And, and it was all of his stuff. This is what he was living with. Yeah. And for people in the computer space, that's quite normal. And what we run into again and again with the, this case is the discrepancy between what the reality is with people who work with computers and the government's perspective of what people who work with computers are like. They almost get treated like witches and they get and so burned at the stake. When they seize all that stuff, you know what they find on there of evidence of him operating Bitcoin fog for 10 years and laundering $334 million worth of Bitcoin? I assume you're going to say nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's not a single piece of evidence in this case that ever shows him operating Bitcoin fog. I think what they did there, to your point about this seven-year multi-million dollar investigation, is they rolled the dice and they assumed that when we catch him, we'll find the evidence. But they didn't. But they didn't let this go. They also, that Mike mentioned his VPN business that Roman started, he had Romanian servers. And so you can see the government's like all excited. We're going to get these Romanian servers. We're going to seize the Romanian servers. And these are going to be the servers for Bitcoin Fox. So they seize the Romanian servers. You know what they find on the Romanian servers of evidence of him operating Bitcoin Fog? Nothing. Absolutely fucking nothing, right? You think that they would let go, but they don't because they've got too much staked in terms of their careers here. There's too much money involved. They've been talking to the press for years about this. There's actually... A, uh, a book by Andy Greenberg called Tracers in the Dark that you can look up all the prosecutors and everybody involved in this case in the index. I have never had a case in 10 years where I could read about my case. I, my cases have been in books before, but I've never read about one of my cases before it went to trial. I've never had a, a book that I could pick up and find out things about the case from the book that the prosecution hasn't disclosed. This case is so fucked up, like with weird shit like that, all over the place. It blows my mind. So can I say as an observation as someone who's come to America a lot, yeah. a lot of my work's in America, uh, I think the whole uh, prosecution side of the way your judicial system works is fucked up. Oh, yeah. Oh, completely. It seems to be, it seems to be once you have a prosecutor interested, they go for it, and there's no scenario where the prosecutor might go, you know what, we fucked up here. Once they've started, sunk costs, they're in. Yeah, they don't care about justice. That's because that's, there's a profit incentive. Okay, that's in what- criminal prosecutions in the United States that doesn't exist in other countries. Right, so that's the two things I want to know about first. I want to know about that, and I want to know about the incentive structure for someone like, someone in the FBI, they spend a lot of money. Why can't they just turn around and say, we can't find this person? Why do they have to? It feels like sometimes having a prosecution is more important than finding the uh, the culprit. And that's exactly what's happened here. So, I 100% agree. Like, for instance, DOJ, the Department of Justice, they keep statistics on the number of convictions like it's some sort of baseball batting average or something like that or run scored, right? That, to me, alone says you got a problem because you're, you're, you're counting numbers of how many convictions you got 
which isn't doesn't equate to justice. Exactly. Right? And That's bullshit. I think this case makes me think that there should be a law where it's illegal for federal prosecutors to go work for private companies that they used for vendors on their case because Chain Analysis has hired one of the prosecutors from this case as their senior legal advisor. Another criminal investigator on this case, I suppose there's so much stuff in this case that blows my mind that looks like so corrupt and dirty to me. There's an IRS criminal investigator on this case named Aaron Bice. And he's on this case in 2015. And he's the main sort of point of contact with Chainalysis. And to me, he looks like one of the guys that Chainalysis, Jonathan Levin, uh, uses to establish their contracts at DOJ, get their contacts at DOJ and get these really lucrative contracts, which now they've got a revenue stream of about $330 million a year. So Aaron Bice is working on this as uh, on my taxpayer dime, working as an IRS criminal investigator, he starts a private company while well, he's a criminal investigator on this case called Exigent LLC, right? Somehow, they, we, we haven't gotten the discovery on this. We're asking for it, right? Somehow, this company starts, private company starts working on the case as a forensics company. Now, when Roman is arrested in April of 2021, the government's been talking to the press now for a couple of years, mainly Andy Greenberg from Wired. Wired runs an exclusive before DOJ even issues a press release. And in that exclusive, they quote our friend, Jonathan Levin. He's not my friend. No, I know he's not my friend. And I, I say that like highly ironically, and he, but he's very clever. He's a very, very clever man. And I think he's the man who's like, seems to me mainly behind uh, the marketing and the networking and, and, and turning Chainalysis into the, the, the blockchain forensics juggernaut that it is. He's very coy. He doesn't say in his quote, he doesn't say, oh yeah, Chainalysis has been working on this since 2015. You, you know, he doesn't even mention Chainalysis. What he says is, this proves that this type of blockchain forensics works. The next day when DOJ issues its press release, now mind you, DOJ's got a, a budget of $44 billion, right? And if you're looking for investors, right, getting your name mentioned in a, in a DOJ press release that your company is the one who helped nab the bad guy Big is deal. huge, right? Every, all the investors are going to look at that as proof of concept, right? Exigent. LLC gets prominently featured like at the, at the top of all the thank yous before like, you know, all these United States attorney's office, the Swedish law enforcement, everything. They thank Exigent LLC. Five months later, Chainalysis buys Exigent for what must have been millions of dollars. They're not telling us. Exigent now has a revenue stream of something like $10 million from the United States government. And then what was it? Two to four weeks later after this press release, Chainalysis does a series E fundraising round and raises $150 million. Okay, what's that guy? Andy Bison? What's his name? Uh, Aaron Bice. Aaron Bice. Okay, and that was the company he set up? Yeah, he set up while he was working for the public as a public servant, as an IRS criminal investigator. He actually dusted off an LLC that I think he'd started in college that had been doing nothing. And then he uses it on this investigation and then he basically cashes out. All, all these different places in the investigation, you see people cashing out. Okay, so, but was he working as a public servant at the time of creating the company? Yes, he was, was working he for the IRS. On this case, he was um, investigating this case. What do you think he made salary-wise? I wish we knew. You know? like, I think oh, he made the, six figures, IRS? like middle six figures, if best, you know? Like, so anything, what, two to four hundred thousand? Not even. You probably make like a hundred, twenty, maybe. I don't know. I never, I okay, don't... so like selling a company for millions is life-changing. 
firms. Yeah, yeah. but and we so, don't see those contracts. And yeah, the government is not showing, showing us the that contract. stuff. They're trying to tell. They're, they're like, oh no, 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 pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. They're, they've made a motion to actually to try and stop us from arguing the careerism and the profiteering at trial because we're like that's key to the confirmation bias here. So that's not out in discovery yet. No, they're, they're like sandbagging us on that. We don't have all the uh, communications with like chain analysis. We have they, barely what, anything from chain analysis. What, what I think happened with these guys is they did not expect this to go to trial. Like what, just like sloppy crap all over the place. They did something, I can't believe this case. They did something so fundamentally wrong in my opinion. It's something that you're taught in legal ethics in law school. And that is if you, you cannot represent a party in a case that you are a material fact witness. Oh, this is a good one. And so there's this case starts with this FBI analyst on the Russia desk in Philadelphia, DOJ, named Catherine Alden Pelker. And in 2014, she writes this um, intelligent analyst memo on Bitcoin fog about what a scourge and threat Bitcoin fog is, and it gets distributed on whatever their intranet at the FBI and everything. And her name's all over this, right? This is like her baby, right? In 2016, she goes, she graduates from Georgetown Law School, which is in Washington, D.C. It's an excellent law school, right? Then she becomes an assistant United States attorney, and then she becomes a prosecutor on this case. Well, that's a huge problem because she's a material fact witness. Every single federal criminal case I've ever had, I have cross-examined the investigative FBI agent. You have a Sixth she's, Amendment right to do so under the Confrontation Clause. Yeah, she starts this case. She's all over it. She's the investigator for two years. So in our first meeting, we looked at her and we, I said to her, I said, you're a material fact witness in this case. You cannot be a prosecutor in this case. You know what she says to me? No, I'm not. Like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with that? Right? And so now there's a big battle whether or not like, we can call her as a witness Right. But like that, they even just did that to me just shows that they weren't thinking, oh, anybody's going to challenge us. They thought they just had like a slam dunk. This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. And not only do they have cutting edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments to try out. And with 24-7 live chat support, you can always get the help you need. To find out more, please head over to bitcasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also today, we have Unchained Now. If you've been listening to my show for a while, you'll know I'm a big fan of saving Bitcoin for the long term. I'm a hodler, which is why I'm happy to recommend the Unchained IRA. Their Bitcoin IRA lets you control the keys to your tax-advantaged Bitcoin, and if you have a Roth IRA, that means you don't pay capital gains on the price appreciation. Now, unfortunately, most IRA providers require that you give up control of your Bitcoin, but not with Unchained. Controlling your keys with the Unchained IRA protects you from exchange hacks or frozen accounts, and Unchained is an all-in-one solution. They'll help you establish a traditional or Roth IRA, set up your cold storage vault, roll over your existing 401k or IRA, and if you want one-on-one guidance, their concierge team will send you devices and walk you through setting up and securing your keys at your own pace. 
If you want to set up your IRA today, head over to unchain.com forward slash what Bitcoin did or schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more. That is unchain.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And if you want to get $50 off, please use the promo code what Bitcoin did at the checkout. Next up today, we have Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and provides privacy by default. Now, with Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can get started coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T.io. But if you're... If if he's not taking a plea, and ten percent go to trial, and no two percent go to trial, did you say? Yeah, two percent, and less then than of 1%. those one percent, less less than one percent of the two percent yeah. are successful. So ninety nine percent are prosecuted of those two. Ninety nine percent conviction. So you so if you're going for a one percent of a two percent, you must think you've got a slam dunk. No, I don't. I never think I have a slam dunk, but I but I do think I've got an innocent man that I have a duty and an obligation to fight like fucking hell to keep out of jail. And I've won before. I beat them before. What's and, at stake here? What like if he loses? What's at stake? What, what's at stake? Yeah. Fifty to life for Roman. Huh. That's what's at stake. And then uh, there's a lot at stake for the blockchain community because then they're going to go. They're just going to go even more rampant with this kind of crap. Ask yourself, why are we even in Washington D.C.? which is a place that he's never been to. He's got no family or friends and never done any business in. And there's absolutely no evidence that he ever did anything in Washington, D.C. The government through this case is trying to expand its jurisdiction globally through the internet just by interacting with the website. So what they did here is in 2019, you know, this case is going nowhere, right? It's dead. They spent all this money. And at this point in time now, Pelker and these people involved with it have now like risen. They become like star prosecutors. These are the star like Bitcoin blockchain prosecutors at DOJ now that we're up against, right? They're no longer these unknowns trying to make their name writing this analyst report in 2014. In 2019, some IRS agents, they uh, they send a message to Bitcoin Fog, whatever, like whatever they think is the help desk or whatever. And they they basically <laughs> say, Oh, hi, I just sold some Molly and some illegal drugs. Is Bitcoin Fog a good mixer to mix my, you know, illegal drug money? No response. They take some Bitcoin, they mix it through Bitcoin Fog, and they put it back in a government wallet. That is their sole basis for jurisdiction in the District of Columbia. Now, we're fighting that. That's, to me, blatantly unconstitutional. I've actually won on that issue before in other cases. What is unconstitutional about it? What, what's unconstitutional? The United States Constitution in two places has something known as the Venue Clause. And it's in Article Three of the United States Constitution, and, and it's in the Sixth Amendment. And what it says is that all federal criminal jury trials must occur, must, it's not optional, must occur in the state and the district where the crime occurred, right? So what crime occurred in D.C.? But the uh, the IRS would buy Molly. I mean, but that's uh, they didn't buy Molly, and <laughs> it's not even clear to me that their Bitcoin that they used were the proceeds of an illicit uh, crime. 
and they got no response. So there's not even any evidence that Roman's even on the other side of this thing. Now, what should scare the fuck out of everybody involved with Bitcoin here is if that's accurate, if they can get federal criminal jurisdiction by simply doing that, that means that any prosecutor in the United States can sit down at a laptop, go to your website or whatever you know they interact with, type out a message you don't know about it, and then they can arrest you and try you in Wisconsin, in D.C., in Boston, in Texas, in Podunk, Louisiana, right? What they're essentially doing here is, like Mike is saying, is they're claiming universal criminal jurisdiction over the internet based on their unilateral acts. Yeah. That's fucked up, and that's really dangerous. Okay, so what evidence do they have? There must be something somewhere that's put Roman, put a target on it, something. So that's a very interesting question. A couple of weeks ago when we were in Mexico City talking about this, it dawned on me why this uh, investigation gained this primacy. And it starts with chain analysis. Chain analysis seems to be the first piece of evidence that they went after, and it seems to be the main piece of evidence that they're relying upon. It, it appears that the government requested from chain analysis to do some tracing from the Bitcoin fog transactions to try to figure out, okay, where were the earliest transactions? In order to do that, they used this complicated and I think misguided approach of clustering a whole bunch of addresses that are related to a particular transaction and from that trying to determine you know which transactions were going into it. It's called a clustering methodology. And when Chainalysis turns over their clustering methodological report to the government, they identify a trace of transactions that they accuse through which they accuse Roman of moving funds from several through several different accounts in order to pay for a registration for a clearnet website called www.bitcoinfog.com. This is the only way that the government is even trying to tie Roman to the all the accounts that are indicated are the operators of Bitcoin Fog. And this transaction, I'll take it from the payment. Yeah, the payment for bitcoinfog.com, which was hosted by this company called High Hosting, it was paid from a, an account registered for shormint at hotmail.com. Shormint at hotmail.com is the email address affiliated all over the place with Bitcoin Fog. It's affiliated with a Bitcoin talk form post under the pseudonym Akamasheti Omadetu, which means Happy New Year in Japanese. It's affiliated with uh, the Twitter account for Bitcoin Fog. It's, it's all over the place. Whoever has sharmatahama.com is probably the creator of Bitcoin Fog. Mm -hmm. Now, the government finds a Liberty Reserve account, which is using U.S. dollars to pay high hosting for the hosting services provided at bitcoinfog.com. And they allege that it went from, through the or to get to the Liberty Reserve account under Sharmat, it went through Arm Exchange. And before that, it went through what was it? Ru Rambler, Rambler dot Rambler at Ru or something like that—a Russian email address, and that's the Mount Gox account affiliated with this Russian email address. Before that, they're alleging that it came from a very interesting email address, which we'll get to in a moment, called nfs9000.hotmail.com. And then the the trace goes to, and it, this is in the complaint. This is in the criminal complaint. They have an unidentified address that we have tried to look up, doesn't appear to exist, and it has a big piggy bank and a question mark on it. The government doesn't even know what it's this is. It's the first is. step in their trace. This is the first step in their Raising trace. And him. then before the piggy bank, you have Roman's account at Mt. Gox with his you know, proper email address that's all KYC'd and everything. So, so there's a big break at the piggy bank with a question mark on it, tying the government, uh, tying Shormant and these other addresses to Roman Sterlingoff. 
Right. So they've gone Kraken, Bitcoin. No, not no, Kraken. Kraken. This is, this this is 2011. Is so what, they're, oh, what they're saying he did in October 2011 is that he paid for the DNS registration for the BitcoinFog.com, you know, normal internet clearnet site, which isn't illegal. Yeah. That's their main piece of evidence. And that what they're doing is they're doing a multi-layered trace through uh, multiple Mt. Gox accounts, then into what the RM Exchange, Liberty Reserve, to get to the payment for this DNS registration. So they counted all these hops. And they counted saying, all these hops. The hops, it's a mess. And, so and they're assuming he, what they're basically saying is, he is the person at every stage of that hop. That's what they're alleging. That's what they're saying. But the first stage of the hop in the criminal complaint, as Mike said, they've got this image of a piggy bank with a big question mark. And what does that mean? What do, you, what do you mean? It means that they can't trace they, they, it. It means, it means that, that they're guessing, out. right? They're and, guessing. And, and we've had the people we've got tracing this shit are like, what the fuck is this? This is all over the place. There's nothing. This is completely arbitrary. And, and the key point with this, it is completely legal <laughs> to register a domain name for a website. There's no evidence that he set the website up, that he ran it. No, of course. But that would at least point towards some kind of evidence. If you had something more. Yeah. If, yeah, if like, you had something you, more, but the problem is you don't. You want pieces of a, like if you want to have a successful prosecution, you want pieces of a, you know, you sure. know you want some pieces of a jigsaw. But what they've, they've reverse engineered their way back. Yeah. yeah. Then they've got to a point where they can't make the hop and they put Roman behind it. And that. then they guess. Yeah, and then they guess. And then I'll just go through the other, like what they considered. I, I don't okay. even really consider evidence. So there's that October 2011 DNS registration. They say that he made, uh, and the, our tracing guys don't think this matters. Our tracing guys were able to they find made, at least six different other outcomes that could come from a tracing analysis like that. So rather than going back to Roman, there could be at least six other steps or, or results. And then before that, DNS registration. By the way, they ignore the re-registration of that DNS, I think in like 2014, 2016. Mm -hmm. They completely ignore it. Um, they say that he made some test deposits to Bitcoin Fog before it became officially online in October 2011. It's announced on Bitcoin Talk uh, Forum, you know, that Satoshi started. Our tracing people can't match that. But again, so what? Because an important point here, and we got the court to say that, to say this in this case, is Mixing Bitcoin is legal in the United States. This is huge because this Money is the first time. Money laundering is not. It's the first time an Article 3 judge in the United States has come out and said mixing is legal. Right, go back a second. When, when did the judge say this? What case? This is our case. Like We'd actually been looking okay. for case law to say that. We couldn't find it. And then when we had, uh, they seized the all funds. his money. That's why we're going around with our tin cup. right? They seized all his money, which is a little under like $2 million. Now it's like under a million. Again, he doesn't have the profits he should have if if uh, he was operating this thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, just um, Dropbit. Yeah, I can't remember his name. The Dropbit CEO. Yeah, search, search mm -hmm. up Dropbit CEO. Do you know about the Dropbit case? No, I'm not sure. So Dropbit was a wallet that sponsored us, sponsored the podcast years ago. Larry Harmon. Larry Harmon. Oh, Larry Dean oh, Harmon. Yeah, Harmon. Yeah, we're familiar with this. This is, this is a Helix case. case. Now, like we were mentioning earlier, this is another example of a case where the government did use chain analysis. Yeah. It was part of the evidence against, against Larry Dean Harmon and, and Helix. And you know that case resulted in a plea. So these, these heuristic methodologies that chain analysis has been using to conduct their blockchain tracing never got to be challenged in but federal court. So Larry, Larry took a plea? Yeah, the, in Harmon yeah. they took a plea. And what's interesting, if what's, you What look, was the plea? Uh, what, what? What did he plead? Like, what I don't know it? what he, I know he pled guilty. I don't know what he got, yeah. like what his sentencing was. But, but they had other evidence that he had been 
uh, laundering money through his mixer. And they were able to show because he he took a picture by accident for, with his Google glasses. And that was the key piece of, of his, like the case. admin panel on his laptop. And that's a key difference in this case than all the other cases. All the other cases have some kind of corroborating evidence. But, so, but, but hold on. So Larry was accused of running a mixing service, took mm-hmm. a plea deal. Yeah. But now mixing is legal, but is the way they prosecute it to call it laundering by virtue of you having that, if you don't know what money's coming in and going out, you could be, by virtue of having it, be laundering under no, their no, description. I think there's, there's a uh, difference we need to identify here, and that's operating a mixer and letting money laundering occur on your mixer is one thing. But as a user who's not laundering anything and just using the mixer, that's what we got was determined as legal. Yeah, I'm, because this is oh, a purely you, custodial mixing. Hold on, so use use... Using a mixer is legal. Correct. Yes. So as a user. Unless you use it to launder money. Yeah. Operating a mixer is legal? Yes. Unless, now here's where it gets a little more complicated, right? Where, How do I know if someone's laundering money? For and that's exactly. what the government is arguing. They're saying, they're asking for in the jury instructions, which are the instructions that get read to yeah. the jury before they go deliberate. They're asking for what's called a willful blindness instruction. In other words, you knew that this was probably going to get used for money laundering, but you just turned a blind eye. And so you don't get to be cute like that, but um, it's not illegal to operate a mixer per se. Yeah, but... but gone. Um, but like, on the back of the dark web, people are buying drugs. <gasps> oh no, shipped, drugs! We hate get, that no, no, word, no, the dark so, web. No, no, hold on, but they're getting shipped through... Yeah, UPS. We call it the deep web, actually. We yeah, but use... it's getting shipped through um, UPS, uh-huh. the, the mail service, right? Uh-huh. Is the mail service liable for uh, uh, facilitating the right. delivery of drugs? Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I think they're trying to find – what is it they're trying to do here? What do you think? Do you think they're tr- this is part of choke point, fuck Bitcoin, or do you think I this think they're is- trying to legitimize their tracing software from Chainalysis. And then that comes out because, as we were talking about earlier with the trace that they did on the www.bitcoinfog.com payment, that came first. When the U.S. government subpoenaed these different email accounts that were affiliated with it, when they subpoena shorman.hotmail.com, nfs9000.hotmail.com. So I only discovered this when I was talking to somebody who we met in Mexico City about this, and I kind of realized that the government went to Chainalysis first, and they've relied on their analysis the entire time, and they've turned a blind eye to all the other evidence that comes forth. If you take a look at the subpoena returns that they got from Microsoft for the email addresses involved in that uh, the, the transaction list we were talking about earlier, shoremint.hotmail.com has a recovery email of NFS9000. You look at nfs9000.hotmail.com's recovery email address, and it's the work email for a guy in California, in the Bay Area, named Andrew White. Now, that's not the only piece of evidence that points to this character, Andrew White. We can't find anything about him online. He seems to own a bunch of properties, but you know, we don't know what he does for work. We can't, and the government doesn't seem to have gone that way in the investigation at all. At all. In fact, there's uh, one key piece of evidence that we found where they're analyzing the different IP addresses that these particular email addresses were using to access their emails. And they're trying to conduct this IP analysis. And Aaron Bice, who is the author of that particular document, he expresses some doubt 
and he says, oh, look, like the, the recovery email isn't Roman Sterling off. It's this guy, Andrew White, are like, are we going in the right direction? And it's kind of like, no, 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 I don't want to look that I, way. I don't, don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about I don't want to think that we have the wrong person here. Let's just continue and try to focus on Roman Sterlingov. Because fundamentally what's happened here is the government's investigation has not been who operated Bitcoin Fog. As soon as they got that Chainalysis uh, investigative report, it became, how do we prove that Roman Sterlingov operated Bitcoin Fog? It's a classic, classic case of confirmation bias, you know, and... Um, I mean, it's, taint, that, it's tainted the entire investigation. All over the place, you know. And, and, and it's like there's a, I think a 40 or 50 page report that they had commissioned by, uh, I forget the name of the organization, is like the National Institute for Cyber Forensics or something like that. Andrew White is all over it, right? Roman's name really doesn't appear in it. They just turn a blind eye to that. And they also turn a blind eye to uh, Mark Carpellis, who, yes, that, mm. this really this raised is my eyebrows. Really, and we found this out from the book. But this did not come in discovery. They're relying almost completely on data that they got from Mt. Gox that has been held by the bankruptcy trustees in Japan that are dealing with the Mt. Gox uh, payments and all the stuff affiliated with the hack. So there's a story in the book, and Andy Greenberg's Tracers in the Dark, about when Michael Groninger goes over to Japan because you know Mt. Gox gets hacked, Right, and mind you, they're using the Mount Gox data here to say that Roman's IP address matches the IP address used by this shoremint at hotmail.com email address. Now, put aside for the fact that most federal courts don't recognize using IP addresses as, as something that you can identify a person with, put aside VPNs, put aside proxy servers or the facts that Thousands of people can be using the same IP address, yeah. right? So they're, they, they essentially are using the Mt. Gox data, which they haven't produced to us in original form. Mind you, there's no logs in this case. There's no communications. <laughs> there's no servers. There's nothing. They say that there's this IP address match based on this Excel spreadsheet that we got from uh, them listing this Mt. Gox data. But in the book, they talk about Michael Groninger going over to Japan and meeting with Mark Carpellis. And Mark Capellis gives Michael Groninger a thumb drive. And he says, oh, on this thumb drive, here is all the Mt. Gox data. Ma Michael Groninger was over there in Japan because he's just starting to create chain analysis. He has this vision of creating a blockchain, basically a blockchain surveillance firm to track out all the different transactions on the blockchain. And he goes to Japan and he says to Michael Mark Capellis, look, I'm going to try to trace the hack and try to find out where all these missing Bitcoin went. So that's why he's over there. And then so he looks at the thumb drive and he's like, there's deleted files here. The, the integrity of this data is like corrupt. And he says to Carpellis, according to the book, um, do you have a backup of this data? And Carpellis says, no, we were hacked and our servers were actually physically accessed, right? So right there, you've got a problem with the integrity of their core, core piece of data that they're, they're trying to use the IP matches. But it gets better. Because Carpellis is prosecuted in Japan and sentenced to four years in prison for, wait for it, for falsifying Mt. Gox data. Now, he doesn't do that time because the best we can figure is that the United States government basically hired him or, or started working with him. And uh, from what we're hearing from Roman, we think he was actually on the phone with one of the arresting agents. Roman, Roman told us an arrested. Pretty in, interesting story about that one. When he's 
underground at LAX. And the two arresting officers who are featured prominently in the book, Traces in the Dark, Matthew Price and Tigran Gambarian. These guys get treated like rock stars, by the way. Kane Allison's had a big conference in New York a couple of weeks ago, and these guys were on stage, they're getting applause. People in that world really look up to these guys. And Roman was saying that he went in the car with one of the agents, I think it, I think it was Matthew Price, it may have been Tigran Gambarian, and that the guy on the other end of the line who this agent had called had a French accent, and you know Roman thought that it might be Mark Carpelis, and we didn't think anything of it until we read Andy Greenberg's book, and the story comes out, and we're like, oh, man, that, that actually makes total sense. I think there's more evidence that Mark Capillus ran Bitcoin Fog than there is that Roman did. For instance, what's the, uh, the Happy New Year guy? Uh, what's the name? Akamashete Omadetu. Which means Happy New Year in Japanese. That's the name that's used to register the Bitcoin Talk forum account that talks about the operation of Bitcoin Fog. And, and promotes and, it. And, you know, Mt. Gox is based in Japan. Right, so they're using a Japanese phrase for Happy New Year in Japan. You've got a guy who's a key source of data in this case, who's cooperating with the government, who's convicted in Japan for falsifying data. That data is the core to that trace where they say he registered the DNS. You know, he did the DNS registration for the Bitcoin Fog Clearnet site. Now, mind you, there's no evidence, there's no code, there's no server logs, there's anything of him, Roman, ever operating. Bitcoin fog. I've never had a case where they have arrested my client, caught my client with all his computers, with his handwritten backup notes, with his diaries, with all of his thumb drives, with three terabytes of hard drives, and there's not a trace on it of him doing what you're accusing him of? So we're not, we're not going to try and prosecute Mark Harpalis here, though, but what we're saying is this is more evidence that it isn't your client. I think what it is is it's them. They just, they, you know, they they want to get a willful blindness instruction against us. I think they've engaged in willful blindness. I think they got dollar signs in their eyes. I think that they know that there's a big, fat, high-paying job for me when I'm done in the government. Chain House has already hired one of the prosecutors from this case, Yuli Lee. Yuli Lee to work as their senior legal advisor. The arresting agents now are working for Binance. There's this, and I've seen this in multiple cases, and it's a huge, huge problem with the Department of Justice, is that they um, they curry favor with big corporations and private vendors because they know that when they're done with their you know little government job, hire me, hire me. There's and a revolving it, it door. It corrupts justice, and I think that's why like one of the, our main points in this case is that this is the profits distorting justice, and and and. There's confirmation bias all over this case. There's careerism all over this case. And what disgusts me the most is that there's profiteering. Yeah. Do you remember the name Mark Carpalis? It's the first interview he went to with me. Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first interview he ever sat in with me. Uh, he is Connor. Yeah. <clears throat> Connor. Connor sat here. Yeah. Where I had to go out to Japan. He, you know, he lived with me and, um, and had no one to look after him. I was like, you're coming to Japan. So we went for three days and interviewed Mark Carpalis out there which is uh just an interesting when cycle. was that that was 2018 mm-hmm. yeah 2018 um okay so okay there's clearly a very tiny small loose attempt at creating a piece of evidence here it doesn't sound like they have much to go on 
when they go to court, but they do have chain analysis data. And is a jury trial? Is a jury trial, yeah. Who chooses it? Do they choose that, or does Roman choose it gets to be, or is it just? We uh, there's a process called voir dire. That's a, a, a law French. It's a it's a thousand year old process where uh, it's a little harder in federal court than state, but where you get to ask the jury's question. It's actually one of the most important parts of the case. It's part of the jury, jury selection. Jury process. selection. Yeah, okay. jury selection. Okay, and so they're ideally going to want a jury. <laughs> who does not understand much about tech, who they can bamboozle and convince them that this technology, this chain analysis data is fully trustworthy and nails on that this is Roman. And ideally, you want people with some wits around them who understand a little bit about technology who can't be bamboozled. But do you believe the fight is over this chain analysis data? Yes and no. Okay. Right. Like, um, yes, in the sense that you know, we have an obligation to completely um, attack it. I think it's garbage. It's probabilistic. It's not deterministic. Um, this is the first time that analysis's work is going to be challenged in a federal trial. I fucking hope you win. <laughs> I so, and that's what this is. This is you the stakes know, are huge. This, this is the huge. stakes are huge. huge. Look, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there are examples where chain analysis data is accurate. Could actually do really good things on certain crimes that are committed that are evil. But ultimately, I think they're a company who's built on uh, evil incentives. Yeah, I, I think it's like, I think they're just like a basic, I think what they actually can do is just basic blockchain tracing that uh, a ton of other companies can but do. But it's probabilistic. But and, we don't know because they won't even give us access to their source code, their input data. They won't let us use their software, Chain Analysis Reactor. Anything that you'd be expect to be able to do in order to see, hey, does this work? Is this scientific? It, it, we're not being provided with. So that. how how do you get to challenge that? In the we subpoenaed it, and we've got a big fight. So there's a hearing on okay. June, on June sixteenth, June sixteenth and June twenty third about whether or not we get to see that. It's called a Daubert hearing. And what's their their defense is that that they will be giving you access to they, their it's IP. proprietary. Yeah, proprietary. they said it's proprietary. But you know what? You're not going to steal that and fucking sell it. No, I'm not. No. And I've been doing this for like a decade. I've never ever like leaked evidence. That's ridiculous, right? Um, what's interesting to me is that. They're the ones hiding stuff. Mm-hmm. They're the ones making money. Roman's not hiding anything. We've already put him on the stand in this case. And the judge and, was like, "Are you sure you're going to do that? Because in the United States, you have a right to not. Uh, you have a Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself. So anybody who actually did something is not going to go up on the stand and talk freely and avail themselves to cross examination by the prosecution. So when we said that we were going, and this is in the hearing to release the seized funds to try to finance the case." We're like, look, we're going to put Roman on the stand. The judge is like, are you sure you're going to do that? Are you sure that's the right move? And we're like, yes, because it's totally innocent. Once he's up there, the prosecution has a full opportunity to two ask days. him uh, two days. any questions that he wants. And you can tell that the government didn't know anything about him. They're standing up there and they're saying, tell us who your friends are. Tell us where you were working and how much you made. Like These are basic things that they should have found out during the course of a, of a proper investigation that has been completely glossed over by the government because of their over-reliance on chain analysis work. I mean, basically all they did at this case is they sat at a desk 6,000 miles away and they guessed. And they guessed wrong. And they rolled the dice when they went to go arrest him thinking that they're going to get all the evidence that proves that he did it. But it was just a wah, 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 wah. Then you see them getting excited over the Romanian servers, right? This from his VPN business. They're all like, oh, we're going to get these Romanian servers. And they seize the Romanian servers. There's nothing on them. 
like this is the only blockchain prosecution that I'm aware of that has no server logs, that has no servers, that has no communications, that there, there's, there's not even evidence. Roman couldn't even code something as complicated as Bitcoin fog. But this goes back to a point that Mike made earlier. There's this sort of provincialism. I'm not sure I agree with that. You think what, that he... Well, you said early on when he, he was technical, he had technical abilities, he was interested in tech, he was coding wallets. Coding wallets isn't easy. I think if you can code a wallet, you I, I don't think that's a big leap to be able to code uh, a, uh, a, a mixing service because a mixing service isn't that big a jump from that. And I'm not even a technical person myself, but... I just, I, I personally don't buy that one. Well, you're, it's interesting to me because he, first of all, he's told me that he doesn't have the technical skills to do that. Yeah. There's, they, uh, uh, one of the things that they seized beyond his diaries, his handwritten notes, uh, they seized his Google Drive yeah. for 10 years, um, you know, three terabytes of hard drives. There's nothing on there that shows that he's got those coding skills. I'm just saying, if you said to me earlier on, you said yeah. he was coding wallets, like coding, I've talked to Andrew Polster about building your own wallets. Mm -hmm. It's not an, it, you know, you you need a certain amount of competency to do that. And so if you could do that, to me, it's not a big lip. To I'm not sure he was coding, I'm not sure he was coding them. I, them. We up. should definitely look up that yeah. up. That's a great question. That's a great point. And you're helping our defense by, well, by it, it, is that, enlightening I, us on this. I, I thought that's what they said earlier. He was creating Yeah, he, he was setting them up, but yeah. I don't know. You know, you're bringing up a if, good if, point. If I don't I've know miss, how. I might have misheard what you said earlier on. If you said... No, that's, that's how I took it too. Yeah, mm. I took it as that. Anyway. It's a great question though. I mean, yeah. one of the things we like about going out and doing these things is people ask us questions like that and then we just go back to Roman, right? Like the, the one thing, of the reasons I'm convinced he's so innocent, right? Is that uh, when you work on a case, right? What wins the case is the story. It's not all this bullshit evidence and all this other stuff. It's the most honest, credible and true story, right? And that's what you're presenting to the jury. And one way you know you've got the right story is that, no matter what pops up that you didn't know about, it'll fit into the story if you've got the right story. Because it's the truth. Yeah, the truth. It's the, truth it's the truth, right. And, and yeah. every time something has come up like that, it all fits into Roman's story and nothing works with the government's story. Because ultimately, the government doesn't have a story. What they have is this analysis and this sort of wishful thinking from desks thousands of miles away with people who are engaging in this confirmation bias thinking, oh my God, we're going to be superstars. You know, we're in Andy Greenberg's book, which has been optioned by Alex Gibney, the Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker, right? Look at all this press we're getting. My career's going through the ceiling, right? Uh Did Bitcoin move directly to Kraken from a Bitcoin fog address? It did. He that that's exactly what we dealt with in the hearing to release the seized funds, and it's part of the reason that the funds were not released to finance its defense. Uh, we were trying to explain that look, Roman did use Bitcoin Fog. He didn't operate Bitcoin Fog. But but so did like funds from Bitcoin Fog go straight to yeah, Kraken? Because yeah, that that makes no sense to me. Because if you're mm. like a privacy driven person running a mixing service, you're not so stupid that you will send to a fully KYC exchange directly from that. And you're not going to keep exactly. your money, all your money, in a KYC Kraken exchange account. Yeah, you know. And this is exactly what Roman did. He was using that as his main wallet. And every time we because talk, he's a digital nomad, and for him, logically, that is a better security than going around with a hardware wallet. Yeah, there's a logic to it. I yeah. don't agree with it, but there's a logic to it. Yeah. And, and no one running a mixing service is doing that. No. And if no. you're operating, if you're, if you're, like you say, it's, uh, somebody else made this point to us in Europe, and when they made it, I was like, oh wow, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. If you're operating, lottery, three hundred thirty million dollars worth of, you know, illicit Bitcoin, 
Do you then take the service fees and put it in your KYC Kraken account under your own name that you put your passport up? Like, no like he's so good, the government wants to say. He's such a supervillain that he hasn't left a trace anywhere. But he's going to go use his Kraken account for this stuff. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security, and it's the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be the time to take your security more seriously. Remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transaction with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, look, it could not be easier. I have been a Ledger user since 2017. I love their products. and I'm still using the same hardware device I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build out their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met the team recently in Canada and were super impressed with their values, which align with us. So they are a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films and live events. And they are even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. I'm really, really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. But if you want to find out more about them, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y dot co. Next up, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy which always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They also are dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. When Ross Ulbrich got arrested and the story that they've said, I think Ross is innocent, by the way, but I also don't think he committed a crime. Mm -hmm. He just committed what they see as a crime. Mm -hmm. But anyway, there was a, a mistake that they, in his, what he did, and and... That's how he got caught. He didn't do something totally stupid. There was a mistake in his process that allowed them to say, oh, you are uh, Dread Pirate Robbers. I, mean, I don't think he is. They, but they found the server. They, they caught him like with his LinkedIn. computer open at the Glendale Public Library. There was this but big operation. But prior to that, he was under investigation yeah. because something to do with LinkedIn. Like there was, there was mm. a hole in, there was, it made a mistake, mm. right? Um, in this story, that, this isn't, like taking using Bitcoin fog and putting it in Kraken wouldn't be a mistake. That would be moronic. And so it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. Nothing the only about way it would up. add up is the only way it'd add up is if there was very easy way to identify funds which went which were the fees that went to a separate wallet. And if that went directly to Kraken, you you'd have a tough case arguing that. Yeah, that would be a tough one. Now the government identifies a wallet that they call it. They say it's a Bitcoin <laughs> yes, fog wallet. This is ridiculous. Yeah, 
so the government, in part of their forfeiture allegations, they say that all the money in this particular wallet is uh, forfeitable to the government because it is the proceeds of operating Bitcoin fog. It's like 1,300 Bitcoins they're claiming in the indictment. So we, the first thing we do is we, in, we type that wallet address into a public blockchain review software that's on the open internet. And we can see right away that that wallet has not transacted at all since 2012. And it has zero Bitcoin in it. But then what they go and do, and this is what they do everywhere, they're like, oh, no, but, you know, we've got this cluster analysis that we're not going to show you in this mystical magic software. And actually, that wallet address is somehow tied to this cluster, and we know that the money's there. Well, then show me your math. But they show don't. Show me the money. Show me the money. Show, show me the math. And they won't do that. They're constantly appealing to this sort of, like, magic and, like, uh, trust us. But, you know, I'm sorry, the, the philosophy of the Bill of Rights is not trust the government. It's quite the opposite. Gene <laughs> is acting like the Wizard of Oz hiding behind the curtain. Because they got so much money at stake. Okay, so w w what's the state status of the case where you're at? You're still in discovery? You're st I've, I've been, I'm in an ongoing lawsuit that's been going on for a long time. Yeah. I know how long these things take. I know all these different stages happen and challenges and testing and discovery and it's so civil. Civil is a bit different than criminal. Mine's civil. Oh, okay, uh, sorry. It's yes. a criminal case, yeah. right? But, but the next step is to have this Daubert hearing, and this is a very important hearing because at this hearing we get to challenge the scientific legitimacy of chain analysis techniques, and they haven't showed us anything. You know, we have a whole bunch of motions in limine that are outstanding that we're going to be dealing with in, in these two hearings. Well, it's one hearing spread over two days in June. Um, the trial's set right now for September 14th, and we think that trial date is a go. And we expect that trial to last one to two months. No, a month. About a month, I would guess. About a month, yeah. About a month, I would guess. Okay. Hard to tell. And mm. what's the best outcome of that? An acquittal. Oh, so you could get acquittal? I'm going for, we're going for an acquittal, and then after that, there's something called a Rule 29 motion. Um, and what that is is you can make a motion to the trial judge and saying, you say there's a guilty verdict. You can argue, listen, no reasonable jury based on the facts, you know, the evidence in this case could conclude, can conclude that Roman was guilty. So the, the what, if you get an acquittal, it's like inviolate. It's almost impossible to overturn unless there's like jury tampering and, and bribing. But if you get a guilty verdict, the judge can reverse the guilty verdict. So that would be the next step. And then, okay. the, then the step after that is to take it up to the DC circuit court of appeals and, um, there are so many constitutional issues in this case. From the venue, venue to the to the what appears to be corruption. being a material fact witness to the profiteer. Like there's there's you. There were constitutional issues in uh, Ross Albright's case, uh, Fourth Amendment issues. Yeah. Uh, why uh, illegal wiretapping? I think I think that was one of the issues. I think potentially. Sixth Amendment as well. I remember there being I've interviewed yeah, uh, Ross's yeah. mom Lynn a couple of times. I yeah, it was a while back now, but I remember there being constitutional issues there. But they still they still didn't get that still didn't stop the prosecution. And no, so, they don't, the reason one of the reasons that the prosecution never stops is because they've got no accountability. Yeah, like even if we get an acquittal and they had engaged in all this kind of like really fucked up cor corrupt behavior, it's almost impossible to sue a prosecutor because of prosecutorial immunity. So that lack of accountability huh. drives a lot of this crap that's going on. Mm -hmm. Why does prosecutor immunity exist? That's a great fucking question. Um, <laughs> because uh, that changes the incentives. <laughs> I don't think it should. 
I think really what you have is you've got uh, a federal judiciary that's basically uh, 80% of it is former federal prosecutors. There's this uh, law and order mentality and there's this, I call it the, the uh, fallacy of the virtuous prosecutor. And that's this assumption that all prosecutors are always acting justly and virtuously all the time. And after 10 years of doing federal criminal defense, I can tell you that that's a crock of shit. And I thought before I started, I bought into all that crap because when you're in law school, they're like, DOJ, DOJ. And you know, everyone's always running to DOJ like it's mommy and daddy or the principal, right? Like the left is particularly terrible with this in the United States. They complain about mass car incarceration. They wanna defund the cops, but anytime anything happens that they don't like, they run to DOJ. DOJ is just like any other fucking human institution. You know, it's full of self-interested people trying to advance their careers, which is fine in other realms. But when you put it in the realm of law enforcement and justice, it's a huge problem, particularly when you have these multi-billion dollar corporations ready to hire you as soon as you decide, I no longer want to be at DOJ. This has been, the only people making money and hiding things in this case are the government and chain analysis. Roman's been upfront with everything. We've put him up on the stand. We've said, go ahead, ask him any fucking question you want. And they just floundered. They floundered. And what came out, what Mike was pointing out is they did not know the first thing about Roman Sterling off the human being. They didn't know what his job was. You know, he worked for an internet marketing company in Sweden for years. They didn't know what his salary was. And that's important because that's the money that he actually took and ran through Bitcoin fog and bought Bitcoin with and put into Kraken. He just used his paycheck. He's an early adopter who, you know, lucked out when Bitcoin appreciated. And for whatever crazy reason, they, they like latched onto him and could not let go. Hmm. Okay, so people listening, what do you need? I mean, you clearly need support and help and I imagine it's financial. Absolutely. Like we've, uh, we were at one point, first of all, the community has been great. Yeah. And I want to give a shout out to the community and say, thank you. Not thank only you just, to Lucas Betchart in Switzerland. Yeah. He really put this on everyone's mind and invited us out to Europe in the first place. And also to Doug Truman yeah. from the Monero Talk podcast, because that was the first podcast that we did on this case. And it was what got the ball rolling on the support from the community. We were on the verge of eviction from our apartments. No Both joke, of us. right? Like, because we like we really believe in this case. Like, you know, whatever. It's not the first case we've done with like no money, and it's a righteous cause. And like, you know, I, I feel like this kind of uh, a little guilty because I enjoy it. I love what I do. But Roman right now is sitting in a fucking jail cell, right? Um, so the community has been great. We need financial support. It costs about two to three million dollars to really go up against the government. Um, we were at one point, Mike and I were facing eviction and somebody in Europe just gave us enough money to pay our bills, right? To get down here, to talk about this case. But even if people can't contribute money, just looking at the case and asking us questions about it, like you asked, because every time we go around, we learn something, mm -hmm. right? Because we're, we're, you know, we're like the government a little bit. You're like down in your hole. And then somebody points out the obvious. Well, if you're really operating the sophisticated criminal enterprise, why would you put your your proceeds in a KYC Kraken account? Mm. And these aha moments have happened like regularly as we're going around talking to all the different communities. We had this happen at Bitcoin Orlando. We had this happen in Berlin. We had this happen in Mexico. And every time this happens, it helps us fine tune our story and makes the defense stronger. Mm. And we're also the other thing we need. We would love help on. I don't know how to do this. Is like. 
people come into the trial in DC on September 14th, right? Mm -hmm. Like one thing you, you see DOJ always do, does, like, so the courtrooms are kind of split, like they, uh, it's almost like a, a wedding, right? Like the, the, the prosecution's people will sit on the right side, you know, the courtroom and, and the defense's people will sit on the left side. They always bring in all their interns and legal assistants to fill the side. And you're always like up there and there's like, you know, two people on your side, like just raising awareness, coming to the trial, like um, battling this uh, publicity juggernaut mm -hmm. that is Chainalysis. Like they just like did this huge conference in New York. It was $600 a ticket. And they had, you know, the, uh, uh, Andy Greenberg's up there with who's Michael Groninger, Jonathan Levin, and the arresting agents in this case. The entire case. cast of characters in our discovery yeah. was at this conference. It's, it's just, I mean, I think Chainalysis is more hype than substance. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason that they're fighting us so hard is that they're worried about their market valuation because if if we get a win here and that's no guarantee the only thing we can guarantee is we're going to fight like fucking hell right and i fight mm. to the death that's about it i've done this long enough to know that like all sorts of shit can can happen in, in litigation but if all of a sudden it comes out that their uh software that is like being used as compliance software for sec treasury you know the serious crimes office in the uk it turns out to be run-of-the-mill crap that's not really reliable and that you could, you know, do a, the same job with the basic stuff off of the internet, they got a problem with their market value. And so do their private equity companies yeah. that invested in them. I mean, you could see, if you look at DOJ press releases on cases that Chainalysis works on, you could see them fundraising after, right after the press releases. Like, they're like, where they're, I think, what they're really brilliant at is not so much their, their Chainalysis reactor, they're a brilliant marketing company. But like their software, I'm it not impressed. It doesn't add up. It just not doesn't add up. At all. Yeah. Yeah. So how do people find out more about this? Where do you want them to go? You, you can website? go to our website, www.toreckland.com. That's T-O-R-E-K-E-L-A-N-D.com. There's a big button right on the homepage. It says, donate to Roman Sterlingoff's case. There's a bunch of information on it. Uh, Mike and I are on Twitter talking about it you a lot. You can find both of our Twitters. Mine's my name, at Mike Hazard, M-I-K-E-H-A-S-S-A-R-D. And I think I'm just, what am I, at Tor Eklund, PLLC, I think. Yeah. Um, can people donate in Bitcoin? Bitcoin? Of course, Bitcoin, Lightning. We have a Monero link for people who really value their privacy. Fiat. Somebody actually gave us Fiat. Fiat the other day. Weirdo. I know, I was like, <laughs> holy crap, what the hell? Let's go. Um, have I not, is there anything I've not asked you about that you wish I had? Is there any bit we're not covered that you wish we had? No, you know, I just, this is a really important case. We could talk about the jail. What? We could talk about the jail, oh, the jail. that, appear, that, oh that appears to be owned by two state judges in Virginia. Is a state jail, but Roman... Judges can own jails. Welcome to America. Welcome to America. <laughs> Hold on. Right, profit, profit motive. Profit motive all right. over Got the place. Got another one, send him to jail. Yeah. Got yeah. another one. Hold on. Hold on. What the fuck? Hold on. A judge can own a A judge can send people to the jail they own. Yeah. Yep. The results of that case was in, in, in Pennsylvania where those two judges were, where they were sent, these judges were sending, uh, I think it was like juvenile, quote unquote, delinquents or whatever. Kids. To, to, uh, kids to a, a jail system that they, they were running and they were making a lot of money. It goes to the core point. <laughs> Right, that that's the core conflict at this at the heart of this case. It's a is, core. is is yeah, this is whole country has com conflict issues? Yeah, 
Well, you, you have this in other areas. Like you can have a military contractor working with uh, the Department of Defense, you know, but that's not someone's liberty. You know, that's not, that's not justice. And when you introduce the profit motive to the justice system, it completely distorts all the great things that the justice system is intended to do. Judges owning jails, though, is what? <laughs> well, it's like, and it's this shithole jail in rural Virginia that takes us six hours to drive to. It's about two grand every time we got to go down there with hotels. Like, you stay at the kind of hotel you dump a body in, you know, kind of thing. And what the they've done in. now, is, and is, I think it's utter bullshit, and now we got a big fight with them about this, but this is, gives you a little flavor of what it's like to work on a case like this because they're constantly trying to put up obstacles Mm -hmm. to you just working on the case. Mm -hmm. So if they stick him in this rural jail in, in Warsaw, Virginia, out in the middle of fucking nowhere. It takes you six hours to drive to, right? The last time we're there, we have a pack of cigarettes with us. And so we take it out and we put it in the locker, right? That Monday, the next Monday, we get this letter saying, you guys were trying to smuggle contraband in to the jail. We're restricting access to your client, right? So basically we can't meet with him in private anymore. Total freaking lie. Now we got to go raise all sorts of hell with the court. We got to, I'm not going to ask the office of the inspector general to investigate this federal contract. And we were talking to Roman about this. And Roman tells us there's a guy in there who's facing trial, trial right now, like in a week. And they have stopped letting that guy see his lawyers. And the reason I think that they're doing it is the guy who's running the jail, they make so much money off their federal contract. What they do is they're just trying to curry favor. Now, Roman is with the a federal, federal, government. federal prisoner. He's supposed to be in a federal jail in D.C., the district where the trial is going to be held. Now, the, those jails are overrun with everybody who's waiting to have trial for the, the January 6th events and the insurrection against the United States government and everybody stormed the Capitol. So those jails are filled with those people. So the, the federal government has made a contract with state jails in Virginia and Maryland, and the state jail in Virginia that where Roman is, that's owned by two judges down there, allegedly, that's what we've heard, and to our knowledge, we know we haven't proven anything otherwise, um, they're getting a lot of money from this federal contract to store federal prisoners. And even the way they're, they're keeping these federal prisoners is not up to the standards of the federal contract. For example, they're supposed, federal prisoners are supposed to be stored in an isolated pod, separate from the state prisoners. And that isn't happening. Roman is in there, and it, it's just everyone's all mixed together. He's in one room with 60 other people. That's how they do the prisons in the United States. It's not like you have your own cell like you see on TV. It, it, it is mayhem in there. You hear on the phone all the loud noises. When, we, when I asked them, like, is there anything that, you know, we can bring you, legally bring you, you know, because we would never smuggle in contraband. The only thing he asked me for were earplugs, you know. Is he doing okay? I'm amazed um, that he's holding up because I would probably try to kill myself in that situation, honestly. Um, he's been in there since April You know, he's like pale. You can see the fact that the food is so crappy, like kind of, you know, affecting him. Yeah. But he's he's keeping his hopes up and he's... You know, his, he was feeling pretty low a couple of weeks ago before we started that the tour after Lucas invited us to speak in Switzerland. And when we told him about the support and how the community was starting to rally around him, how you guys reached out to us, yeah. you know, that lifted his spirits and he's intent on fighting this and intent on proving his innocence. Not that he has to prove his innocence, you know, the government. <laughs> this <laughs> is a great story. We got to share you, this you one with you. Story. Go ahead. Yeah, so we're at a pretrial hearing. This is right after we hopped on the case. Yeah, right it? when we got on the case and we're throwing everything, you know, at the and, wall. We don't know what's going on. You know, you're just like trying to attack. There's two prosecutors, right? So you have, you have Catherine Pelker and the of Chris Brown, who seems to be the more junior uh, attorney on this case. And 
he, he kind of says to us, you know, you have to prove Roman's innocence. And no, we're like, that in open fucking court. Yeah. And like, no, and you like, have to prove his guilt. You, they, they, said, they said that we had the burden of proving Roman's innocence. And I'm up in they front of the judge. What? It's like innocent until proven guilty. That's the standard in the United States. And the government States. has to prove guilt but, beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. I was, I, I was in, I remember vividly just sitting there and I'm like, what the fuck did I just hear? Yeah. <laughs> did the prosecutor just say, I've got the burden to prove that our client is innocent? But you know what? The, the truth of that statement, it's true in the context of the fact that our system has just become a plea bargain system. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the plea bargain system is like. You're there as this lawyer going in and you got to prove the innocence of your client or they're going to just fuck you, right? And that's all they really do because so few cases actually go to trial. And when I look at this case, I just see them like, ah, we're going to get the plea. I mean, I'll admit it. When I got this case, Mike was mentioning this. I was just like, oh, yeah. Uh, this is the assumption, yeah, like, the in, default in the assumption that everybody has. It's like, oh, yeah, he must have done something. The government would never, ever grab an innocent man. Never. Ever, right? I've <laughs> never oh, done that. In the criminal complaint, it's just a very interesting language. And once you know what it means, it changes the whole meaning of a criminal complaint. Uh, and that is because it's being drafted by an, an investigative agent who's, you know, putting forth all the evidence that the government has and why this person should be arrested. And the language, based on my training and experience, oh, yeah, was all over this criminal complaint. It wasn't like, you know, here's an example of Roman accessing the servers or here's an example of Roman communicating through the Bitcoin Fog uh, database. Nothing like that. It was based on my training and experience, the evidence that I've seen. You know, and, and you can tell that the investigative agents hadn't, they weren't going on anything. Because if they did, they'd say something better than based on my training and experience. Motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> Listen, we will get this out there to as many people as possible. Hopefully as many people can hear this as possible. Keep us updated. We can't come in September. We're in Australia. <laughs> um, but keep us updated on the case. Uh, more than willing to have you back on as a follow-up. You know, we hit New York a few times anyway. Um, are you sticking around? For a bit to see other people, or are you heading straight back? Uh, we're here for. We'll be uh, speaking at the Bitcoin 2023 conference. Ah, so up we'll next week. see you this week. Yeah, we'll see you this yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have anything you want to ask? No, I think we covered it. All right, man. Well, listen, guys, all the best. We will share everything out. We'll do everything to support you. All the best. Send uh, Roman our best wishes. We will. Um, if if he's possible to visit, I would maybe cons like if I could do that, I'd be happy to go and visit him. Um, maybe yeah, we could, we could line that up maybe. Yeah, yeah. I'd, go, I'd go and see him, no problem. Um, uh, we got to go to DC at some point anyway. Mm -hmm. let, let us know. But anyway, anything we can do, you've got Danny's details, reach out to us, and uh, all the best with us, yeah? Free Thank Roman. You. Free Roman. Free Roman. Let's Free get Roman, him out. Man. Let's get him out. Thank you. Okay, what do you think of this one? It's pretty ropey, right? It sounds pretty shady. I, I think this is a really important conversation to have, and we're always happy to have these kind of shows. We're always happy to have people representing Bitcoiners who we believe have been innocently prosecuted on the show. And the evidence against Roman seems very thin at best. And I think there is a good chance that an innocent man has spent the last two and a half years in jail for no reason. You know, I spent a lot of time looking into the Ross Albrecht case over the last few years, and there are some similarities. And I, I do really hope Roman managed to get his case heard fairly 
and not as made an example of unfairly like Ross was. So anyway, um, I hope this was eye-opening for you. Um, I hope you got something out of this. If you've got any questions about it, obviously you can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And also, they are looking for people to make donations to support the legal costs. You know, these legal defenses are expensive. So there's something in the show notes about that. Please do go and check that out. All right, have a great week, and I will see you all on Friday.